0: That last song before the offering talking about blood of Jesus being enough, just striking me, you know, if that's all I had in this life was the blood of Jesus covering me, would I say that's enough? That's not part of the sermon, I'm just kind (laughs) of reflecting in front of everybody and that's all free of charge, but just how God was working in my heart as we sung there. You know, if you ask, uh, if you ask pastors, uh, uh, Bible teachers, professors, Sunday school teachers, maybe even parents working through uh, the Bible with their kids, there's there's certain passages, certain spots in the Bible that might uh, instill a little more nervousness than others, and quite often that revolves around eschatology, study of end times things. And so this morning, as we're working through this last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, we've come to Matthew chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus gives prophetic words about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, and there are there are no shortage of Bible commentators who would say that these two chapters are the toughest ones in the book of Matthew to interpret. So uh, I stand up here a little nervous this morning in that way. Um, nervous because of the the difficulty of of working through a text like this, but also a little nervous because at times the the beliefs we have about end times things and events can stir up passion within us. I I, I think about myself, I'm someone who who grew up with an understanding of end times events largely influenced by my childhood church, you know, which which would make sense, um, and perhaps from being honest, probably even more so by the Left Behind series of novels that came out in the 1990s and 2000s. You know that was just part of where my early education in in this type of thing came from. And because of that, I can remember times when when I was first introduced to other schools of of uh, thought, other methods of interpretation regarding eschatology that that I, I felt this urge inside of me to be like no no that can't be that like it, it just can't be and it wasn't because heresy was being taught what was being taught was something that had stood the test of time through church history and, and there, there's orthodox uh, belief behind it but it was it was just different than I was used to different than I was comfortable with and I could just kind of feel that within me so so all that to say I I'm a bit nervous this morning as we as we go through this text, but, but still determined to wade through these interpretive waters with you. And in my desire, in my hope and prayer is that, that I'll do that this morning with with an appropriate combination of, of humility and confidence, um, confident in the things about which the text is clear, but but humble about the things in which the text is is less clear. so so now that I've bared my soul to you on that, let's, let's dive into these, these waters together. And, and, and we, we need to start by, by doing the vital work of setting the context for what Jesus is going to say in these two chapters. So, so I would really encourage you this morning to, to follow along with me, either in uh, your Bible or, or on your phone, whatever. It's, it's page 829 in the Pew Bible. We'll start at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, and I'll warn you: there's 97 verses that we are working through this morning. That, that's a, a quite a bit more than normal, but I do intend to read all of it. Uh, I, I, I not all at once. We'll break it up. Don't worry. But um, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to break the text into multiple weeks because I, I think the overarching themes of of Jesus' entire discourse are, are just more clearly seen when we consider all of it as a whole. So I'm just warning you, we got a lot that we're going to get through this morning. So let's just get right into it. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, so right there, that's all the introductory stuff right there. So so the last three weeks, we've been studying uh, material from Matthew 21 through 23. And the location for nearly all of that has, has been not just Jerusalem, but the temple in Jerusalem. And what we see in chapter 24, verse 1, is that Jesus and his disciples are, are leaving the temple. They're departing from there. Now, we must understand that, that this temple was, was one of the most incredible structures in the world at this time. Uh, it, it had beauty and it had majesty that was arguably unrivaled by anything else. Okay, so, so it's no wonder that the disciples were in awe of the structure and even drew Jesus' attention to it as they were leaving. But much to their surprise, Jesus and his disciples, they walk over to, um, well, he, he says it before they get there, but he says to them, it, it, it's, it's going to be destroyed. This temple that we're looking at, this incredible structure of architectural significance, of, of spiritual, theological significance. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. I mean, what a, whew, what a statement that Jesus is making to his disciples. And, and an, an event like that surely would have been symbolic of something major. The end of all things, even, right? And that's exactly how Jesus' disciples viewed it. When Jesus made his prediction in verse two about what would take place, the disciples then in verse three asked not only about the timing of that specifically, but also the end of the age, the the end of all things. They, They clearly equated the destruction of the temple with the end of the world as they knew it. Those two things were one and the same to them. And it's so important that we catch that assumption in their question to Jesus. And the reason it's so important is is because Jesus is going to take that assumption and he's going to split it apart. He'll answer both parts of their question, but he'll do so in a way that differentiates between the destruction of the temple and his coming again at the end of the age. So as we read Jesus' response now it can be so easy to hear his words through the filter of specific timelines and interpretations that we've studied or, or, or come to accept. And, and I'm not saying we need to just forget all those things. I'm not saying that at all. But, but we do need to work hard this morning to, to hear Jesus' words in their original context before we jump forward into interpreting future events. So so we need to work hard to remember that question that Jesus is answering as he answers it. So so picking it up again in verse four, Jesus answered them See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout, all, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So because the disciples were focused upon the destruction of the temple, Jesus began there. He started there talking about the things that would precede that event, so wars, Rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution from outside the church, persecution from inside the church. All of that was going to come before the temple would be destroyed. Now we have the benefit of recorded history and so we know that the temple was completely destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD, 70. 0 and we also know that these signs, which Jesus foretold around 30 A.D., that's about what it is, right, as, as he speaks, 30, we know that, that those signs did take place over the next 40 years before the temple fell. And, and this can include what Jesus said in verse 14 as well about the gospel being proclaimed throughout the whole world. You might say, well, hold on, hold on, Aaron. How can we say verse 14 was fulfilled by 70 A.D.? I mean, here we are in 2023 and there's still people, groups in our world who haven't heard the gospel message. I just read an article yesterday that, that um, estimated three billion people have no way to hear the name of Jesus. They either haven't heard the name of Jesus or they don't have someone in their life that can tell them about who Jesus is. So, so what do we mean that that could be, well, What is meant by Jesus' statement that the gospel be proclaimed throughout the whole world? Does he mean every individual? Does that mean every individual alive will have heard the message of the gospel? Does that mean each language group? Does it mean something different altogether? There's some interesting statements from Paul. Uh, Let let me just read a couple of things that Paul writes. In Romans chapter 10, uh, Paul writes this. He says, so faith comes from hearing hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, he says that the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So you have Paul writing two letters, both around 60 A.D., he talks as if the gospel has already gone throughout the whole world, the, the known world at least, as he maybe referenced it. So, so it isn't a stretch to say that by the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that the church could have thought of the gospel as having been proclaimed throughout the whole world. It didn't stay in Jerusalem, but it went out from there in those decades, Now, maybe not permeating every corner of the world. I mean, there's still people groups today, aren't there, that that haven't heard the gospel. But, But it had at least moved out from Jerusalem and gone across the known world. So there is an argument that can be made that this statement in verse 14 could be seen as fulfilled by the time the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So, Jesus talked about all these signs that would precede the temple's destruction. And then he gave instruction about what to do when that time arrived. So, we pick it up there in verse 15. He says So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So the destruction of, the destruction coming upon Jerusalem, of the temple itself, but but of the whole city, would be catastrophic, as Jesus describes it. And indeed, Josephus, the the first century Jewish historian, records for us that when Rome invaded Jerusalem, Jerusalem, there were 97,000 Jews who were taken slaves and another estimated 1.1 million who died by the sword or by starvation. I mean, that is major, major. The judgment coming upon the city would be horrific and it was horrific. God, in his mercy, gave the people signs that warned about its coming and then instructions about what to do once it arrived. As soon as the temple was desecrated, the people were to get out of there, flee from the city, head for the Judean hills, not rally the troops in in a surge of nationalistic pride or religious pride to try and purge the Romans from the city, I and mean, we as Americans, can, we can understand that, right? Jesus says, no, no, no. Ignore those urges and flee to safety. Get out of there. I mean, he said the destruction of the city, the death of the Jewish people, it's gonna be like nothing that you had yet experienced. And, and the Jewish people had been through a lot looking back through history. Jesus says, this, this is not gonna to compare to this. He says, get out, leave. But even in the midst of such turmoil and such despair and destruction and death, Jesus would not be returning to earth just yet. Look at what he then says in verse 23. He says, then, so as these things are unfolding, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So when the fall of the temple took place, there would be those who would insist that it meant that the, that the coming of Jesus would be soon. But, Jesus says, no matter what those false prophets say, don't believe it. Don't listen to them. There would be plenty of false prophets who would arise during that time and would speak just those things. There were false prophets over the next 2,000 years of church history, even to today, who continue to predict the return of Jesus. Jesus tells them, he tells us, don't, don't believe them. Do not believe them, do not go out to them, do not follow them and what they teach. The second coming of Jesus will not be announced beforehand. But it it will also not be hidden when it occurs. I mean, he says it's going to be like lightning that spreads across the sky from the east to the west. Everybody's going to see that. It'll be like vultures circling above a corpse that you can see from a great distance, and so you know there's something there beneath them. Jesus says it will be visible to all. When Jesus returns, everybody will know there won't need to be anyone on earth who is announcing it for everyone else. It's going to be visible for everybody. So then he continues, look at verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the signs of the Son of Man, and then all the The tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, in my opinion, these three verses are the most difficult to interpret in this difficult uh, section as a whole. I think it is likely that Jesus is still speaking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when he speaks these words. So he he makes reference in these verses to Daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And it's interesting that here in verse 30 and in Daniel 7, And in Luke's and Mark's Gospels, which also uh, record this same statement, the Greek word translated as coming isn't the word parousia, which is usually the word used to reference the second coming of Jesus as we think of it. Rather, it's a different Greek word which, which also has this idea of public vindication So you think about it, Jesus is predicting all of what's going to take place, the fall of the temple, and when that all happens, there'll surely be a vindication for Jesus, right? I mean, all a person has to do is think back to his words or read his words that were recorded and say, wow, Jesus knew what he was talking about. There's vindication for him in a way. Now, I I would say his resurrection was (laughs) vindication for Jesus as well, but, but there's a sense that Jesus says, you know, immediately after the tribulation, all these things take place, there's going to be a vindication for him. And then, additionally, language about the sun and moon being darkened, that was common Jewish metaphor, um, talking about significant or even uh, cataclysmic events. So, in Isaiah chapter 13, there's an oracle spoken against the city of Babylon. And it contains words about the stars of the heaven and their constellations not giving light. Talks about the sun and the moon not shedding their light. Um, The temple in Jerusalem being burned and destroyed by the Romans would have fit into that type of event. And so so it's difficult to know with certainty if Jesus' words here about the sun and the moon are literal or, or symbolic in that Jewish tradition of talking about those types of events. It's it's difficult to know for sure. And then then one more thing, and and this really fascinates me, is that in Luke's gospel, he separates Jesus' statements about uh, the temple destruction and the second coming of Jesus, and he separates them even more than Matthew does. So Luke records Jesus' statements about the temple destruction in chapter 21, and Luke records the statements about Jesus' second coming in chapter 17. And, and this material, these three verses that we're talking about right now, Luke includes in the, in the section about the destruction of the temple. And so looking at all of that together, I, I, I believe Jesus is still speaking about 70 A.D. here the temple destruction when he gives, when he makes this statement in these verses. Now, I would also say that it's quite possible and I think maybe even probable that we will see another fulfillment of this prophecy at the end of the age. I, I think that's one of the ways in which God shows his glory, not just through fulfilled prophecy but through multiple fulfilled prophecy. It's like, you know, it's hard enough to do it once, right? But to see, Jesus, but to see God fulfill um, past prophecies multiple times is just incredible. And so I I really think that while those words applied to 70 AD, I, I would not be shocked in the least that we're going to see that type of a fulfillment, uh, see a fulfillment of these words once again. And I, you know, man, we could, we could spend a lot of time <laughs> right there. And I don't want to speed past it too much, but we've still probably got 60 verses that we need to get through. So, um, uh, if you want further discussion on those three verses or anything else, please, uh, let's connect, let's do that. Let's, let's uh, set up a time to have more in-depth discussion together. We can definitely do that. I like coffee and I like pie, if that matters. In the... Anyway. <laughs> I believe Jesus concludes his focus on the temple destruction in these next few verses. Verse 32, so he kind of begins to transition here. He says, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he's near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So again, I, th- I think the fact that Jesus told his disciples that these things would all happen in their generation is, is further clarity that, that all that he has just spoken about applies to that destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So wh- whether they found it easy to believe or not, that event would come to pass and, and there would be many signs preceding it which would, which would prepare them for it. However, the end of the age, the second coming of Jesus, would not be announced by such signs. So look at the shift with me that takes place in verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, master that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and will put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So do we hear that, that stark change right in Verse 36 right once once Jesus shifts his focus from the temple destruction to the second coming his commands also shift from recognizing the signs and responding accordingly to simply being ready those outside the ark in Noah's day the men in the field the women at the mill the servant of the house or the master of the house the wicked servant none of them were ready for what to just suddenly took place. They were all surprised, caught off guard by it. I mean, that That's how it will be at the second coming for, for those who aren't ready. And you know, we, we, we might hear someone teach that the second coming of Jesus will be preceded by wars and earthquakes and all the things we've talked about already and and statements like, well, uh, things are getting pretty bad, so Jesus must be coming soon are, are common. But, but those things really go against what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives that day. He said, the Son of Man will come in an hour when we do not expect it. So the message is not to interpret the signs and, and, and put together a chart with with outline, you know that that outlines the return of Jesus and, and all the events that are going to take place with it. The, the message is short and simple: be ready, be ready, because there will be those who are going to be caught off guard by the second coming. But but you, as he says, Trey warned me last week. I need to change the batteries. Guess what I did not do. I was not ready for my mic to go to go dead. So, it, what Jesus said—it's short and simple. Be be ready. Be ready. We we don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be caught off guard. Like those who are not ready. So, so the natural question can be then, what do I? How how, how do I get ready? Right. What, what does it what does it look like to to be ready? Well, in chapter twenty five, then Jesus goes on. He talks. He, he gives three parables, three examples of what it looks like to take that command to be ready to heart. As we read these parables, keep that question in mind, how can I be ready? Jake, if you want to just bring me or somebody bring me two double A's, I can swap them out real quick. So So follow along with me, Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1, and let's keep that question in mind. How can I be ready for the second coming of Jesus? Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. nor the hour." All right, just give me like two seconds here. We'll be back in business. Now, that that parable has been uh, uh, allegorized quite extensively over the centuries, and it's interesting to read the different interpretations, what, what people say, all the different parts of, those, uh, of that story stands for. And while I, I think our imagination gets a good workout doing that, I, I think it causes us to miss the main point of what Jesus is saying. Again, read in the context of this entire uh, discourse. In this story with five wise and five foolish virgins, the, the, the main point is pretty simple. Five of the virgins understood that the bridegroom might be a while in coming, and so they had extra oil. They were were prepared for his delay, noted by the extra oil. Five of the virgins assumed that the bridegroom would come quickly, and so they were not prepared for his delay, noted by not having extra oil. So part of what being ready for Jesus' second coming means is that we understand that it could be prolonged. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we always told be ready, because it could be any moment? Like it, it could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, like that. And and yeah, and we'll get to that in the next parable, but but we must also function as though there is a span of time that will take place and is taking place in between the destruction of the temple and the second coming of Jesus. Like the five wise virgins, we want to be prepared. In our waiting. So and I think this plays itself out in different ways. I think it means that we that we aren't afraid to take on long-term tasks as disciples of Jesus. Why spend decades evangelizing a remote people group with an undocumented language if Jesus is coming back any day now? Why would I do that? I mean, if I'm convinced Jesus is coming back next week, why, why would I why would I invest in something like that? Why why should I why should I pour into my kids today and parent them with adulthood in mind if Jesus is coming back tomorrow for sure? Right? Why why go through the hard work of disciplining myself in areas that prompt spiritual growth if if I'm going to meet Jesus before supper tonight? Right? Jesus could return at any moment, and 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 he will return at the moment chosen by god but but rather than kind of you know foolishly sitting up on my roof day after day just looking into the sky wanting to be the first one to see him come i ought to be living each day being faithful to him in my waiting Th- those five foolish virgins missed out on the coming of the bri- bridegroom because they weren't prepared to wait They just weren't ready. But like the five wise virgins, let's be prepared to wait so that when our bridegroom does come, we will be ready for him. We must be prepared in our waiting. That's part of what it means to be ready for Jesus to return. Another part of what it means is being faithful with what God has given us because he could come back at any moment. So it's being prepared for any prolong, prolonging in his delay, but it's also being ready at a moment's notice. So that for this one, we get the second parable. Chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus said, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that's a pretty well-known parable. Probably one of Jesus' more famous ones. The master who had given money to his three servants went on a long trip and was a long time in returning. I mean, do, do we hear the theme that Jesus keeps coming back to here? But at some point, the master finally returned without warning, and called his servants to give an account for what they had done with his money, and two of those servants, of course, were faithfully working, and so when the master returned, even though it was unannounced, they were ready to report to him they, they, there was profit from their work. But the third servant was not faithfully working, so when the master returned, he had nothing to show, right, for what his master had given to him. He, he, had, he had done nothing of profit with his talent, so being ready for the coming of Jesus means living our life in such a way that we are utilizing what our master has entrusted to us. I mean now in this parable it was money given to the servants. But the principle of this parable applies to anything and everything that God has entrusted to us. So money, yeah, but but skills, intellect, time, relationships, opportunities, and things like hardship and suffering even. I've been challenged by, by those lately, thinking about hardship and suffering as something to be stewarded, right? but, I, but I think that applies as well. It's everything that God has entrusted to us Are we we living in such a way that we're ready? It's good to know that Jesus' return might be prolonged. We get that in the first parable. But we also must daily be faithful knowing that his return could be at any moment. And that's what we get in the second parable. Are we faithfully utilizing what he has entrusted to us for his glory? Because that's part of being ready for him. And then finally in the last parable, Jesus reveals to us that being ready for his return means that we're living a life filled with mercy. So let's finish up chapter 25, starting verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? Then they also will answer saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not and did not minister to you?" Then he will answer them saying, "Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me." And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it might be tempting to think that just because Jesus hasn't returned yet, that he isn't near. But in reality, he's closer than we, than we probably realize. And I don't mean closer in time, like he's coming soon, I mean his presence. The mercy that we, that we do or don't show to those who are oppressed and afflicted is mercy that we do or don't show to Jesus himself, is what he says. So those who are ready for his return are the ones who are showing mercy, as if he's already here. Right? They're seeing him in people. They're seeing the image of God upon people, and so they're showing mercy to those people. That's those who are ready for his coming. It's not about saying, well... I just don't want to be caught doing something bad when Jesus returns, right? You know, I need to be doing something good so that whenever he comes back, that's what he's going to find me doing. It's about living living as, as though we are already in his kingdom, showing to others the characteristics of our king, right? Seeing the image of God in every person and so being merciful in response to that if that's how we're living, he'll, he'll find us prepared because nothing will need to change about our life. We'll, we'll, we'll have been living as if he's already here. I mean, it won't surprise us. We'll be like, Oh, Jesus, hey, you, you know, you're here, but I've already been living as one in your kingdom. I've already been showing mercy to those created in your image. That's a lot of verses, right? 97 verses. There's a lot there, but, but hopefully you're seeing why I wanted to do it all together, because there's a cohesiveness to what Jesus gives in this discourse. When I was reading these two chapters, I, I found it enlightening to read them from uh, the perspective of two different groups of people, especially. The first group, I, I was trying to think how might Jesus' words have been received by by the disciples, right, as they they were sitting on the Mount of Olives looking across the valley to Jerusalem in 30 AD, so 40 years before the destruction of the temple, how would Jesus' words have been received by them? How, How would they have heard Jesus' words about the temple being destroyed and also being in their generation's lifetime? How would they have thought about there then being a span of time in between that taking place and the second coming of Jesus I I think, I think Jesus words here would have would have given them wisdom in the face of the false prophets who would who would say hey Jesus is here now or he's coming right now I mean it would have given them wisdom in the face of that temptation and I think his words would have would have increased their trust in God's sovereignty as well especially as those prophesied events began to unfold. And they can look at them in real time and say, oh yeah, Jesus talked about that. Oh yeah, he talked about that. Would have, would have only served to increase their faith in his sovereignty. So I think about it from, from the, the perspective of the disciples in 30 AD. The second group I, I was trying to think about was the original readers or hearers of Matthew's gospel. So the consensus among a lot of Bible scholars is that Matthew's gospel was written in the decade after the temple was destroyed. So how would, how would those people have heard Jesus' words of prophecy looking back on what had already taken place, the destruction of the temple, would, would such powerfully fulfilled prophecy have led to deeper faith on their part, when they can look at kind of the totality of it and say, wow, look at the detail that Jesus told us and it just all played out, you know, just five or 10 years ago, just like he said it would. And what would they have felt then knowing that, okay, well, we didn't miss the return of Jesus. Yeah, the temple was destroyed, but but Jesus said, okay, there's going to be some time, some distance in between that and my second coming. I mean, would it, would it have, how would they have responded to that, you know, especially when Jesus says, well, be ready, right, because now they would have been looking at that and saying, okay, all of this happened, all the things that Jesus said, here's the signs, that all happened, the next thing is, well, I'm coming back, so you just got to be ready, I, mean, I, I would think that would have prompted them to take that seriously, and say, okay, the next thing on the calendar is Jesus' return, we better make sure we're ready for that, now, Jesus' words in these chapters reveal to us that the destruction of the temple was not the end of the age. I mean, that might have been the common way of thinking about it, but Jesus said no. And in fact, I, I think you can say it, it visually ushered in the beginning of a new age, the church age. I mean, that's really what, what was taking place there. You know, the temple wasn't the focal point of worship of God anymore, that, that, that moved outward. That's everywhere God's people gathered, the church. But, Jesus also says, the end of the age will come when I return. That is going to take place, but no one knows that day or hour. No matter how convincing they might be in their proclamation, nobody knows that day or hour. So are we ready? Are we ready for his return? Are we prepared in our waiting? Are we faithfully stewarding what God has entrusted to us are we seeing God's image in everyone and so showing mercy to them and that's the question for us today right in some ways even though we're almost 2,000 years removed from the first readers of Matthew's gospel the next thing on the calendar then is still the next thing on the calendar today the second coming Are we ready for it? Are we ready for Jesus to come back? It's the the question that he he leaves us with. Let's let's stand together and, and come before God. I think coming before him in awe of the prophecy that he gives to us, but also coming before him humbly, that he would help us to be ready for his return. Father, I... I mean, you are, you are God, and we are not. And we are so thankful that you are sovereign and that you work with purpose and that you work for our good, and, and, and we thank you for that. God, I pray that, that for myself, for all of us, that, that we would take that question seriously. Are, are we ready for you to come back, my living each day so that whenever you return i 'm going to be ready for that. Thank you for the, these these parables that you give to us that that help give us a picture of what that looks like, and God for each of us in our in our Individual lives, our daily walk would would you help us to know what that means for us to be ready and for and as a church body as well? May we know what that means to be ready as a as a family gathered here together? I thank you that we can with confidence know that you are coming again that gives us such great hope uh, what awaits us is incredible. And we're so thankful for that, God, and we thank you for it. Thank you that you've, throughout history, proven your words to be true and that you will continue to do that. Not one of your words will be left unfulfilled. God, and because of that, we worship you now. May, our, may, may the songs that, that we close our time singing be glorifying to you as we reflect upon your goodness and your, your fulfilling of your promises. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.